Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, especially Mr. Greer, for the words of welcome and the invitation to come today and stand in front of, as he's referred to, my home church, which is really a place which feels like home, and have the responsibility of preaching to you this morning. That's something which I'm sure I've said before has previously given me a great deal of fear has felt at times a little bit like more of a burden than a privilege. Now, I still don't find myself free from fear this morning, but I have to say today, especially reflecting on all that has happened over the course of the last four years, more than four years now, and at this point, as we look to what lies ahead, my overwhelming thought isn't that preaching here is a burden, but that it is a privilege to stand in front of your home church and preach God's Word. Now, before I do that, I want to take this opportunity to do two things. One of those is made very obvious by the fact that I'm standing here now no longer in my college uniform, and that is to thank every single one of you who has supported us so much over the course of the last four years, not just me, but our whole family. I know that we have been prayed for constantly. I've heard it myself in public, and I know that that doesn't stop when it comes to your private prayers as well. Thank you so much for praying for us, but also those of you who have been so sacrificial and so consistent in giving to us, that, I assure you, is something which hasn't gone unappreciated, not by any stretch. And all the while, all of you have taken an interest in us, have asked what we're doing, what's going on at the moment, how college is, where I've been preaching, all of those kinds of things. That is an encouragement just to know that we're on your mind that you're thinking about us and uh, wanting to encourage us even by asking how things are going. That has been very real, particularly in recent weeks since I graduated from the college, and everyone's been asking me, what's next for you, Glenn? What are you going to do now? What's coming down the track? And I'm prepared to confess this morning, we've been less than forthcoming with a detailed answer to that question since the graduation took place. That's why I'm very glad and I'm very relieved to be standing here this morning to take my second opportunity, which is to finally give you a proper answer to the what's next question. Mr. Greer has uh, left an announcement out this morning because he wanted it to come from me rather than from him, which is that at Friday night's presbytery, my application was received and approved to be made a missionary candidate of the Free Presbyterian Church to be sent to Kenya. That might not come as a big surprise to a lot of you here today, but all the same, it's not a surprise to me either. Yet, saying it out loud, making a public note of that is something that's quite scary to take the next official step on that journey towards the place where we believe God has called us. And we do believe that God has clearly called us to missionary work, and then specifically to do that work in the land of Kenya. I won't go through how all of that has been made obvious to us today, because that's something I need to keep when I come to this congregation and many others and do my deputation meetings over the course of the coming months. And so simply, I ask you to keep praying for us uh, now, as all of those deputation meetings will be taken in the different churches around Northern Ireland and even elsewhere as, as well as that, pray for us as we start to learn Swahili. We want to do that now while we're spending some time at home on our deputation. Pray for us then as we just make all of those practical preparations 
to leave our home here and go to our home over there. And pray for the kids. Um, they need their little minds to adjust to what is going to happen, what change is coming for them. So do remember Holly, George, and although Isabella doesn't have a clue what's going on, you can pray for her as well, that whenever we do get to Kenya and God's will, she'll understand why we've ended up there. Uh, but not just the kids, pray for Emma and I too. We need God to keep us calm over all that is going to take place in the months to come, but not just calm, more than that, confident. Confident that as we take all of these steps, that we're walking in the plan that God has already made for us. I stood before this church before I started college and read to you from Joshua chapter 1. Uh, verse 2 is the verse which the Lord used to call me into college. And I want to read to you now verse 9 in the same discourse, Joshua 1 verse 9, which speaks to our situation today. It says, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. And we do pray that the Lord will make those words real for Emma and I and our whole family circle in all that is going to take place in the months to come. Will you please turn from Joshua, if you've opened to there, over to the other end of the Bible to 3 John, please. 3 John is where we're going to be uh, reading and studying in our message this morning. John, 3 John, that is, it's uh, not easy to find, just before Jude, which is just before Revelation. So you're right at the other end of Scripture, and we're going to read the whole uh, letter, only 14 verses together. 3 John, and we will read together from verse 1. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, Thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom, if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God." But he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. 
Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. Before we go any further, let us pray together. Ask the Lord for his help as we come to consider his word today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you already for all that has been said and done. We thank you for the theme of our second hymn, that our sin is nailed to that cross. We bear it no more. We say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Lord, we pray that you will now open the words of truth to us today. We can't hope to grasp this. I can't hope to explain it clearly without the help of the Spirit of God. So now come amongst us, come upon me, and sanctify us through this truth today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've never really been much of an athlete. Many of you in this congregation will have your own stories about how that is particularly true. But while I'm not much of an athlete, I've always loved watching and playing sports of all kinds. And growing up, I naively hoped that one day I'd eventually try a new sport for the first time. And when I tried this new sport, I'd find that this one was the one for me. I would have real talent. I'd have world-class ability. And it's just a matter of time until I find the one. Football, rugby, tennis, table tennis, swimming, golf, basketball. I've tried all of those and I've had great fun but I've realized that in every single one, I've performed distinctly average. By the time I reached the end of my school days, the only thing that I found that I was better than all of my friends at was Tetris. That's not a particularly useful thing to beat your friends at, but it's the only thing I could find. That's not yet recognized as an Olympic sport, much to my disgust. And I used to think to myself, if only I was as good at football as I am at Tetris, then everything would be great. I would be able to make a success of my life. I would be able to reach a certain level. If my level of success in sports sports matched my level in video games, well, that would take me far in life. But we know uh, whatever area of life you think about, whatever thing you wish you were better at, we can't make a magic wish and reach an elite level in every single area of our lives just like that, whether it's academic, athletic, artistic, or whatever else you might think of, there is no one who has it all. We certainly are weak in particular areas. This little letter which John the Apostle wrote to his friend and brother in Christ, Gaius, recognizes that truth that we can't have it all, or at least we don't. We don't know very much about Gaius. That was a very common name in the New Testament period, the early New Testament period, but John does give us some insight into the most important areas of this man's life. I want you to look with me at verse 2. Verse 2, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. You see the relevance of what I said in the introduction. It seems that Gaius, he might not have been too well off financially speaking, It seems that his health perhaps might not have been the best. That's suggested by the fact that John is praying that those things will improve to reach the level of his spiritual prosperity. This man was truly prosperous because more importantly than his health or his wealth, it was well 
with his soul. Gaius is spiritually prosperous. The question for us today is this, what was it about Gaius? What was it that was seen in his life that meant John could say, here is a man who has a prosperous soul? The question comes to us today, what are you to pursue? What are you to look for as you hope to have what Gaius had, a prosperous soul? The question of how to have a prosperous soul is something John goes on to answer as he continues writing. He points out some specific observations that he has made of Gaius's life, and each of them relate to the same theme, and pay attention to this. We'll come back to it throughout the message today. They all relate to the issue of truth, of truth. That word crops up again and again and again in this little letter. Verse 3, I want you to read as John continues in his description of Gaius, "'For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee.'" The first feature of Gaius, which demonstrates soul prosperity, is that he is inhabited by the truth. He's inhabited by the truth. What exactly does that mean? We all know what the truth is as far as the meaning of the word goes. You know what it means to say that something is truthful or is true, but you also know that truth isn't something you can touch. Truth isn't something you can swallow either. So, how is it that we can say that Gaius was inhabited by the truth? How can I explain it to you that you can see today that it's possible for people to see the truth that is in thee? How is it that people could say that about you? How does it work? We need to understand the meaning of truth more clearly, and I want to open that up to you by looking at what John has recorded for us in his gospel. As he followed Christ, he makes various observations and records various words of Christ, which open up to us what it is to say that this truth inhabited Gaius. I want you to go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And we'll read verse 6, first of all. John 14, verse 6, and remember we're paying attention to how Scripture explains to us or describes to us what the truth is. John 14, verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, that is Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus states with authority, not merely that he speaks a message which is true or that he always tells the truth, that is certainly the case, but more than that, he is the truth, John 14, 6. But in the same chapter, if we go down to verse 16, we see something else about the truth. Verse 16, Jesus continues, he says, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. So, we're seeing there that Jesus describes himself as the truth. He also describes the Holy Spirit as the truth, and says even that that Spirit shall be in you. This is this inhabiting of the truth. Just a few chapters later, 
in chapter 17. You don't need to turn to it, but Jesus then refers to the Word of God as truth in His high priestly prayer when He asks for the church, sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Now, I said I was going to help you understand this, and right now you're probably thinking, Glenn, this is getting more confusing by the second. You're still better at Tetris than you are at preaching, so how am I going to make this make sense? Which one is it? Is Gaius inhabited by the truth in that it's the Word of God? Is he inhabited by the truth as the Son of God? Is he inhabited by the truth as the Spirit of God? Which one of these is John speaking about in his letter of 3 John? I'd suggest to you that in a certain sense, we don't need to choose one of these three to be the truth which inhabited Gaius, but rather all three of these things can be true of a believer at the same time. To be inhabited by the truth, it is a comprehensive thing. Son, Spirit, and Word. I want you to see that for yourself if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm aware that this is heavy going in my first point, but I'm wanting to build a theological foundation here. So, Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13, you can see how these three forms or descriptions of truth come together in one. Ephesians 1 verse 12, describing the believer, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. There is the Son who is truth, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth. There is the word which is truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. There is the Spirit of truth. What does that all mean? Gaius, like every single believer here today, had heard and received into his heart the Word of God, the truth of Scripture, which teaches us, as it puts it here, the gospel of salvation. The Word of God has taken root in his heart. He is inhabited by the truth of the Word. But this Word of God, it reveals a person. That's what you're seeing in verses 12 and 13. It reveals a person, the Son of God, You see, at the end of verse 12, it describes how they trusted in Christ, but only after that they'd heard the word of truth. They heard the word, then they trusted in the Christ of the word. The two must go hand in hand. It's impossible for a person to be inhabited by the word of God if they do not believe in the Son of God, because that is the theme of the word. It all speaks about Him. You can't separate the two. If you have received the truth of the Word, then you as a consequence have received and are united to the Christ revealed in that Word. You're inhabited by both. And then the end of verse 13 brings in the Spirit of truth. All who have received the Word, all who believe the Son, are sealed by the Spirit. He permanently takes up residence, inhabits the Christian at conversion. And in so doing, is God's seal. That's the language used here. What is that? A a stamp, a proof of ownership that God has over every single one of His people. This is what it means to be inhabited by the truth in the fullest sense. Gaius had received the Word of God, which is truth, 
he had believed and is united to the Son of God, who is truth. And he's indwelt by the Spirit of God, who is truth. That's a lot to take in in one go. It's not the easiest to wrap your head around, but we need to start here. As we try to answer this question today of how to have a prosperous soul. I want to delay this foundation because you need to understand, first and foremost, you do not have a prosperous soul today if you have not been inhabited by the truth. If you have not received the Word of God, which reveals the Son of God and gives entrance to the Spirit of God, this is how it starts. This is how you can be inhabited by the truth, and without that, you can go no further. What John continues to say to and about Gaius, what I have to say to this congregation today, it has no relevance to you if you haven't been inhabited by the truth. This is the foundation, inhabited by the truth. And as we go back to 3 John, what does he go on to say then in his description of Gaius? As we've discussed, he has this truth inhabiting him, but how does John know that? How did John's brethren, as we read in verse 3, how did they testify to him of this fact that there was truth in this man Gaius? How could they know? You only need to read the rest of verses 3 and 4. It says that those brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Gaius wasn't just inhabited by truth in his heart, and and that's the end of the matter. That's all it means. Although the truth was something he had received internally, it's something which has an impact externally, a visible impact, because he's not just inhabited by the truth, now he is walking in the truth. I did one of those things during the course of this week that we really know we shouldn't do, but we find in the moment that we just can't resist doing this thing, even though we know it's a really bad idea. On Friday, I started to feel an ache in my stomach, and it was particularly affecting me when I walked because it was this sharp pain in my stomach every time I took a step. Now, when that was all happening, instead of thinking rationally, instead of connecting the stomach pain to the microwavable noodles that I just had for lunch, I instead did that stupid thing that we should never do, which is I started to Google my symptoms. And after 90 seconds of expert research, I wisely concluded that the real problem was that I had ingested a tapeworm. I have no idea why I reached that conclusion. Now, the pain is gone as I'm standing here today, and I can walk normally again. So, I think that probably tips the scales towards the noodles rather than the tapeworm. But the point is this, even though I couldn't tell what was going on inside my stomach, I couldn't see what had inhabited me, whether it was noodles or a tapeworm, I was able to detect that something was up on the inside because there was a change in how I was walking. It affected the way I walk. The invisible situation internally was having a visible impact externally because the truth is not only received, but the truth is lived out. Those who are inhabited by the truth also walk in the truth. Again, to make this practical, what does that look like? What does it mean 
to walk in the truth. How should you today, as you seek to test yourself and say, am I prosperous in my soul? Am I walking in the truth? How can you apply that test to yourself? Well, again, I want to come back to the same distinction I made in the first section. We can't go wrong when we again think about the truth in those three ways we did earlier. The Word of God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God. We're going to turn back to Ephesians, not to chapter 1, this time to chapter 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4. And as you even begin to read this chapter, we'll start at verse 1, you see that this chapter is of real relevance to us as we think about this question of how we can walk in the truth. Ephesians 4 and verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Paul is dealing with this question. In this chapter, he's going to discuss the matter of walking in a way that is fitting, that is appropriate. That's the idea, fitting of those God has called out of darkness and into light. How do we live in a way that is appropriate of that truth, that reflects the gospel? One of the things he mentions in the course of the chapter in verse 17, which I admit might seem painfully obvious to most of us today, is that we should not walk, as he puts it there, as other Gentiles walk, as the heathen is simply what he's referring to there. Those who have not received God's truth, those who he describes therefore in verse 18 as blind. Don't walk as those who are blind. Don't walk as those who've not received the truth. If you walk like that, then you're not walking in the truth. That's effectively the thrust of verses 17 to 19, which brings us in then to verse 20 and 21, which I want to read with you. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. The apostle says, in comparison to the way that the heathen walk, you, however, Christians, you have not learned, heard, and been taught by Christ to walk in that way. He wouldn't have you walk like that. He's shown you to walk differently. And as you scan from that verse 21 onwards down through the course of the chapter, you'll see all kinds of practical instructions that are given as to how they might obey the teaching of Christ, how they might obey the instructions that have been given as to how to walk in truth. And some of those are particularly challenging and searching even for believers to read today. But the point I want you to think about is this. The Ephesians didn't actually see or hear Christ with their own eyes and ears. They weren't close to where Jesus was as He taught, as He performed His miracles, as He did all of these other things and so on. And so, how can Paul say that they were taught by Christ? How can he use that kind of language? In fact, to bring it to all of us in this room today, how can any of us say that we've been taught by Christ, that we've been instructed by Jesus Christ? We've already, in part, answered that question. We see Christ through His Word. That was the case for the Ephesians. If you are going to walk in the truth, you need to obey God's Word. This is how Christ teaches His church. And so, this is the first aspect of walking in the truth. We walk in the truth by obeying the Word of God. 
But that's not all we see here in Ephesians chapter 4. Also, by resembling God's Son. If you go back up the chapter a little to verse 11 through to verse 13, we'll read those ones together now. Verse 11 to 13 of Ephesians 4. It says there, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's being taught here is that God has given particular people with particular gifts to teach the Word of God, to explain the Word of God to the church. And there's a particular purpose in that, which is stated for us in verse 12. The reason these people are set apart to teach the Word is for the perfecting of the saints. Okay, what does that mean for the saints to be perfected? Verse 13 explains. The saints are perfected as they mature together, as they become one perfect man conformed to the fullness of Christ. That is the goal of teaching. That is the goal of obeying the Word of God. And here we see the Word and the Son come together again, because if you are walking in the truth, you'll be obeying the Word of God, which as a consequence will have you more and more resembling the Son of God. Those who walk in truth desire to be like Jesus Christ. Gradually, they're being made more like Him. And all the while, as verse 13 is really getting at, awaiting the day of His return when that likeness will finally be complete. The fullness of Christ. So we walk in truth by obeying the Word of God, by resembling the Son of God, but also following the Spirit of God. Same chapter, Ephesians 4, but now verse 30. Verse 30, towards the end of the chapter. We read here, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. That same theme again of being sealed, indwelt and stamped by the Holy Spirit. And there's a little warning given given here in the first part of verse 30, but it's sandwiched right in the middle of some very practical instruction. In verse 29, it's talking about controlling our mouths. In verse 31, the following verse is talking about controlling our temperament. So the implication here is that failure to obey the Word of God in areas like those, failure to resemble the Son of God in these ways with rotten and empty speech, which Paul writes to the church. Rotten and filthy speech. A tendency to bitterness and anger, again, something which the church needs to guard against. He says, if you fall into that, you will grieve the Spirit who inhabits you. To sin is to go against that indwelling Spirit. It is to resist His leading, His prompting in in the heart which He inhabits. Doing those things which are carnal and worldly rather than spiritual and godly, they are counter to the Spirit of God who is holy. They're against Him. That's why this picture is given to us here of the Spirit being grieved. Those 
who walk in the truth are those who, rather than going against, rather than ignoring and grieving the Spirit indwelling them, are those who are following God's Spirit, responding to His prompting, waiting for His leading, not grieving the Spirit. Gaius is doing all of this. The truth that inhabits him. It's visible because he's walking in it. He's obeying the Word. He's resembling the Son. He's following the Spirit. And as we think about the fourth verse of 3 John, it gives John great joy to see this and to hear this about Gaius, who he describes as one of his children in verse 4. Now, of course, John is not actually Gaius's father. Most people suspect instead that Gaius had been converted through John's ministry. And that's why this term of endearment, a child, is used. Uh, And that theme, it got me thinking. Who are our children in this sense of the word? Those who we've influenced for good. Or look at it from the other side. Who are my parents in this sense? Who is it that's influenced me, that's encouraged me, and taught me to walk in the truth? The question that follows from that is this. Does the way that I walk, does it encourage those people? Does it give them joy as Gaius did for John, or do they find themselves discouraged to see that their godly influence, their encouragement, their careful teaching has all been ignored, and instead of walking in truth, we're walking in sin? If you're a parent here today, this verse 4 certainly applies to you, the responsibility you have to your actual children to teach them the truth and to walk in it. But because John doesn't use it in that sense, we can't limit it to that. This applies so broadly. Sunday school teachers, children's workers, youth leaders, Bible class teachers, mums and tots workers, open-air preachers, maybe someone who just has taken someone else under your wing, This applies to you. Take joy when you see that God has used your words and your example to lead your children to walk in the truth. They might not be related to you by blood. They might be, just as Gaius was, far too old to qualify as children in the strict sense of that word. But nonetheless, take joy when you see those people walking in the truth. God has used your encouragement. Obeying the Word, resembling the Son, following the Spirit. There's one more thing in Gaius that proves to John that he's prosperous in his soul. And like the others, it again relates to the issue of truth. If you read with me from verse 5 of 3 John down to the end of verse 8. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. What does all of that mean in all four of those verses? What was Gaius doing? He was showing practical Christian love to fellow believers. Specifically, in his case, he was opening his home and his resources 
to evangelists, to missionaries who were traveling through his area. And he set an example by doing this of being charitable, even to people, as verse 5 tells us, who to him were strangers. As a side note, that's very important. Hospitality, in the true sense of the word, it's for strangers. It's not just for your friends and your family. That's a fine place to start. But true charity, true hospitality is for those who are connected to you in perhaps no other way than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Gaius is doing uh, through his example here. And so, in verse 8, John describes him on the basis of all this, this very generous, this very sacrificial conduct, as a fellow helper to the truth. It finishes us off. He's inhabited by the truth. He's walking in the truth. He's a helper of the truth. I want to maybe bring all of that to life for you. I think it's interesting to compare Gaius, who we've read much about already today, to the next character who's described in this little, little letter. And he sticks out in stark contrast. John goes on in the following verses to describe a man called Diotrephes, who really couldn't be more different from Gaius. If you scan through verses 9 and 10, you'll see some things that jump out. He loves to be the most important person. He refuses to receive fellow believers, genuine believers. Verse 10, he speaks maliciously about them and even wants to throw believers out of the church. So, think about this. Gaius, who's loving, who's gracious and charitable, Gaius is a helper of the truth. What then is Diotrephes, who's proud, who's inhospitable, who's even abusive and intolerant? By comparison, he is a hindrance to the truth. One is a helper and one is a hindrance. Which one are we? When we live like Gaius, we help the truth. We help confirm that the gospel actually changes people, that it makes people like Christ, that it fills them with love. But when we live like Diotrephes, unchanged, unlike Christ, utterly devoid of any of His love, then we're hindering the truth. We're undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we helping or are we hindering? Let us be helpers of the truth. Those who by our practical love, by our prayers, by our conduct, are given the privilege, and it is a privilege, without even being one to speak the truth, but to be a helper of the truth. It's the role Gaius took, the privilege of contributing something to the spread of God's truth in this world. Helpers of the truth. I finish this morning with a sobering question. A question that's challenging for every single one of us here, no matter who we are, no matter what our standing is today before God. In the light of that verse 2, where John points out that Gaius is healthy in his soul, but wishes that he would be just as healthy in his body, I wonder, what would it be like for you if I snapped my fingers and in a moment the health of your body was taken to the level of your soul's health. What would that look like for you? I imagine in Gaius's case, if that were to happen, he would immediately become someone strong, someone healthy, someone energetic, like some kind of superhero. His body every bit as prosperous as his soul. What about you? Is it the case 
that right now, yes, your body might be strong and healthy, and yet at the snap of my fingers, it would become as weak as water, falling apart to match the health of your soul. That's a searching question for believers here this morning, for the Christian people. We all have varying levels of soul prosperity. What's yours? Same question is an even more sobering one for you today if you're not a believer. In the same scenario, if I were to snap my fingers and the state of your body would match the state of your soul, you wouldn't be big and strong. You wouldn't even be weak and in pain. The stark truth is you'd be dead. You'd be dead. Your soul isn't strong and prosperous, thriving. Your soul isn't even weak and pathetic. Your soul, the Bible tells us, is dead. The good news is the dead can be brought to life. In the way that we've already discussed today, you can be inhabited by the truth. You can walk in the truth. You can even be a helper of the truth. Your dead soul can be resurrected through the Word, through the Son, and through the Spirit. And so today, receive the Word of God. By faith, call out to the Son of God who's revealed through that Word and immediately you will be indwelt by the Spirit of God. May the Lord make it so today. Before I have a word of prayer, I just want on your behalf to thank Glenn for all that he's said today and the preaching of the Word, which has been a great blessing to all of our hearts. I, I know and I'm sure I'm really thanking for that Word from the Lord. Um, he will be coming to one of our meetings uh, on a Tuesday night a little later to tell you all about the future and some more details, a lot more details than he was able to bring this morning, so we'll be announcing that in due course. But he referred to the fact that on Friday night at Presbytery, he was uh, accepted by Presbytery as a candidate for missionary work, and so we thank God for that. And we trust the Lord will bless him and you will keep him in your minds and hearts in prayer. But I didn't want to say this earlier, but I want to say it now. Uh, our brother, Mr. David McCauley from Ballymoney, uh, has also been accepted by Presbytery to be a missionary candidate. And so his uh, leading is to go to Uganda. And I say that for you to remember David, he is a brother of our sister Rhonda McTurnahan. And uh, it's only right that we make this known for that reason uh, as well. But remember these young men, that the Lord will be with them. There may be others in due course who will, will be telling you about with regard to missionary work. But we are so thankful that God is answering prayer and that young men and women are coming forward and are being trained and are being led by the Lord into the mission field. So uh, just to say that to you today, and I trust the Lord will bless us all as we continue to see God at work in our missionary endeavors across the face of this earth. Let's just have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the Word of God that we have heard today from Thy servant. We bless Thee for the clarity of it and for the way in which it has been brought home to our hearts and our minds, the challenge of it as well. Lord, I do pray that Thou wilt use that Word and that it will bear much fruit, and that there will be 
those today whose lives will be changed and that the truth of God will enter into them by the Spirit, through the hearing of the Word, by Christ dwelling in them richly as he comes to save the soul. O Lord, do this, we pray. Help your own children to keep on walking in the truth. And may we be helpers to it. And we pray, Lord, that we would know thy blessing and thy power. Bless Glenn. Pray that thou wilt be with him as he pursues the calling that thou hast laid upon him, as he has all the deputation meetings to fulfill, as he prepares himself in so many ways. Pray for Emma, too, and for the children, that thou wilt bless them. We thank them for them as a family and for their being part of this congregation. And, O oh Lord, we do ask thee to give them the grace that they will need in days to come as they will go forth to serve thee in that land of Kenya. So, Lord, hear our cries. Bless our whole missionary endeavor. Be with us now throughout the rest of this day. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all thy people. Uh, both now and forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name and for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.